welcome to episode 348 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Michael O'Malley. Nathan Smith. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we'll be continuing our music video series with a collection of works by director Hype Williams, who uh, Nathan talked a little bit about last week, just kind of in a general consensus. But uh, we're going to drill down on some of his more well-known music videos in part two. But we're also going to kind of link into that through part one and talk about his feature film, uh, Belly, from 1998. So we'll do that as well. Um, But yeah, let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week. Michael, I'm going to lead it off with you because you saw a new release. Yeah, um, I watched Bad Trip, uh, which is on Netflix. I guess it was just released last month. Um, And uh, it is a movie starring Eric Andre and then his co-star I had never seen before, but I guess there's a lot of TV work, um, Lil Ray Howery. He was in... uh... He was he was the the best friend of Daniel Kaluuya's character in Get Out. Oh, oh, did not recognize him. But anyway, um, so he's in that as well. And basically, the the like elevator pitch for this movie is that it's like a road trip buddy buddy comedy, um, except that um, the people that they encounter on this road trip are actual real people, and the they were. F- filmed as like a kind of hidden camera prank style. Um, So you have these, you know, Eric Andre um, and uh, Howery are going through the motions of like, kind of like this, um, you know, the the conventions and tropes of like a kind of buddy comedy. Um, But you see people's real life reactions. And so it's kind of like in the tradition of like bad grandpa or, um, some of the skits on Jackass or, or things like that. Um, and, uh, I, it's, uh, and it's also produced, it's produced by Jeff Tremaine of Jackass. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it definitely has that pedigree. Um, and dedicated listeners may remember that I wasn't like a huge fan of the Jackass, uh, movies nor the show. Um, and as I started watching this, I was not sure if I was going to like it either. Um, but it really endeared itself to me by the end um, because I think, I guess the thing that I would separate it from the Jackass movies uh, is that like the, the kind of like warmth and sweetness of this movie where um, most of the pranks feel at the expense of the, of the actors themselves rather than the, the audience. You know, these guys are being less of a, like a pest, I guess, and they're being more kind of... Um, like some of the stuff is like stuff that like you, you know is kind of interesting and weird for these prank comedies like there's like the sincere beats of the movie take place as like hidden camera pranks like there's a part where these buddies have had a falling out and then they reunite on a bus like Eric Andre has to like run after the bus and stop the bus of full of real people and like in front of like this audience who has no idea why the bus has been stopped he like gives this like kind of sincere like in character apology uh, to his friend and they reunite in front of everybody. And that's, I guess that's like really interesting to me because it's not really asking for a specific kind of reaction from the audience. Like it is simply like giving people unsuspecting audiences, like a, like a sincere and sweet moment. Um, 
And I mean, the movie has like plenty of like gross out stuff too. There's a scene in which Eric Andre's character runs into a gorilla pen at a, at the zoo and gets like molested by the gorilla more or less, and it's pretty gross. Um, and he so, gets I mean, raped by a gorilla. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah I wasn't sure. Yeah, we should use that word, I guess. Um, <laughs> and and he gets a. Uh, he gets jizzed on by the gorilla as well uh, in the yes. in the act. So I mean, so there's plenty of like gross like body fluid stuff going on. Um, there's like another scene in like an uh, a like a honky tonk bar uh, in which like Eric Andre gets like really drunk and then like you know just kind of like a vomiting gag. Um, that's you know I mean so it's it's definitely got that stuff, but there's definitely. Uh, like I guess the interesting new wrinkle is that it's also like working through the like the three act like comedy like mainstream comedy thing so not all of the moments are the gross out like extreme moments and uh, I found that really you know it's it's just like a really fun uh, good time movie that's like really sweet by the end um, and and I really enjoyed that also uh, Tiffany Haddish is in this as like the um they steal her car at the beginning of the movie and so she's pursuing them the whole movie and honestly like this is the most i've ever enjoyed a tiffany haddish performance who generally is an actor that i like admire more than i like enjoy her performances but like there's like a she's kind of like um she's playing like not recognizably herself or at least meant to be not recognizably herself um she's like escaped from prison and is like uh is like covered in like dirt and tattoos and stuff the whole movie um and she's just supposed to be this mean scary presence and i thought she was great um and i really enjoyed her presence there too um i know you guys did you guys talk about this like a, a few weeks ago briefly mm-hmm. i don't know what y'all's reaction were yeah and we and, and jessica well jessica talked about it and it was kind of the same thing where um she said that you know it was usually she she kind of liked that it was people like that the jokes were on you know the the a lot of the stuff was happening to eric andre and laura howry not the people who you know were watching um and i and I, I also just like how it um kind of plays with like the absurdity of like it plays with how silly that type of plot is anyway you know like it has at the beginning where he uh runs into the girl that he hasn't talked to since high school and like is in love and he has like this whole musical number uh and it's just it shows you like how absurd like that like something like that would be in real life because like he's in the middle of this mall with like this broadway-esque music number and like people are like looking around like holy like what is going on right now um and that- well, and what I think is funny is like you know, there's those kind of viral internet videos where like you know the flash mobs or whatever would do that, and those videos are normally kind of like flattering of the performers, right? You know, people like applaud at the end or whatever. But this is staged in a way that like, like in the mall, he like runs up on this like big stand and is just kicking the mannequins off and kind of breaking stuff, and so people are like uncomfortable and not sure what to do, um, which I think again like plays into the fact of like this guy is making himself a buffoon in front of crowds. And so you kind of get to see the crowd's reaction to buffoonery rather than the crowds being like, you know, harassed by Johnny Knoxville or, you know, whatever Jackass would have done. Um, And I think that's like, that was like interesting that none of this felt like self-aggrandizing of a performer. It was um, because nobody seemed to understand like how to take it, even though like within the context of the movie, it makes sense. Yeah, I'm uh I, I really enjoyed 
Derek Andre's work for a while and his comedy of disruption and discomfort and I mean I, I I've like I like a lot of the Eric Andre show but I do think there's sometimes where it gets a little bit like wearisome because it is sort of a lot of it is predicated on shock value but I do think that he does like very interesting things with it and in this movie in particular just sort of like fusing it with a lot of other emotions and like very overt sentimentality and you know stuff that's just sort of like emotionally the polar opposite of like aggressive shock comedy is a really interesting combination and i just uh i'm you know as as listeners of the podcast probably know i'm a fan of gross out comedy in general and i just really like that this movie really sort of explicitly put itself in a lineage of like a certain kind of 2000s comedy both the connections to jackass that we talked about but also there's a whole like recurring bit in the movie about white chicks and so i just like you know i just feel like there hasn't been enough of that kind of like energy in american comedies you know not enough poop jokes and dick gags and body suits and all of that so i just really like that this sort of was working hard to sort of bring that back even though it feels you know it, it has these kind of references to 2000s comedies but it does feel very like a very new movie i mean it it is a netflix distributed movie and it has kind of like a very just like music supervised like netflix pop kind of music cues and stuff and um so but i don't know it's it's a fun movie you know it's a very like watchable movie and a really i i like when comedies have that kind of whiplash between grossness and upsetting stuff and then like stuff that's very wholesome or melodramatic or whatever i mean that's i like that tendency a lot in like adam sandler movies um and i i kind of enjoyed how that was sort of worked with here well i guess there's a new there's a new jackass movie coming out this year and i think eric andre is in it yeah so we can look forward to that with no bam margera yeah those guys are like in their mid 40s right like there's no way that they can take that punishment anymore it'll, yeah it'll be interesting no i mean john i think johnny knoxville and steve-o went to the hospital recently um, but also bam has been kicked out of the movie because of his like onset antics and his just sort of perpetual spiraling and he posted a cartoon to instagram recently that was like here's the sketch idea that was like too hot for dick house and it was like bam margera presents like the money train and it was just like a drawing of a scribbled cartoon of every member of jackass getting like fucked in the ass um and like beg like kneeling down begging for money <laughs> so fun that should be an interesting movie uh, it's gonna be interesting um well bad trip is on netflix uh nathan i'm gonna toss it over to you we're gonna talk a little bit we're gonna go a little off the reservation for a little while but it's still it's still movie adjacent yeah, uh, you know, it's still cinema still, you know, of a kind. There's movies involved. You used to be able to log a, a lot more of it on Letterboxd, uh, good old WWE. You know, just a couple weeks ago was WrestleMania 37, and for those who aren't 
uh, in the know don't follow WWE. Basically, their sort of private uh, exclusive streaming service, WWE Network, was recently absorbed into Peacock, the NBC streaming service. And so I had signed up for like a Peacock free trial. And I was like, you know what? I hadn't watched wrestling in a little bit until this year's WrestleMania. Why not go through some older wrestling, fill in some blind spots? And in the past like week and a half, I've ended up watching like 15 or 16 WrestleManias, which are almost all like four hours long. And I mean, a lot of it is like kind of background viewing a little bit. I'm like doing other things and it's very good for that. But a lot of it does like really captivate my attention and leads to a lot of very interesting thoughts. Um, just, I don't know. I've now watched like in a very short period of time, like uh, a lot of wrestling over a period of years. And so you just see a lot of just like how pop culture has evolved in general and American culture has evolved over time. But one of the things that was really interesting to me is, um, and I guess what I wanted to focus on specifically, that's maybe a little bit more directly movie related was just like this persona of John Cena um, because, you know, John Cena is like a very, you know, one of the few really big, like mainstream crossover wrestling superstars, obviously is in a lot of Hollywood movies. Now he's in fast nine coming out soon and the suicide squad and, has sort of, you know, it's really, I mean, him and, and Dwayne Johnson and Hulk Hogan and a handful of others, but those are really like the wrestling stars that have really sort of like crossed over. And John Cena is really interesting because he is, so he's super popular, super famous, obviously people who don't know wrestling know him, but in the WWE, uh, Fans are super divided on him. He's actually very controversial. You watch pay-per-views and go to matches, and when he comes out, people are chanting back and forth, let's go, Cena, Cena sucks. And sometimes people are even chanting, like, both of those things because they just like, you know, to, like, fuck with people and and kind of, like, enjoy the sort of just the show of it. Um, So he is, you know, really popular with kids, I think kind of a heartthrob, but also he's, like, been such the face of the company for a long time and such the kind of the man, you know, the really like the superstar who gets promoted above everybody else who gets the biggest deals and is in commercials and movies. And so I think there's a lot of kind of resentment of like, Oh, he like hogs the spotlight. Um, but it was really interesting going through all these WrestleManias and I was sort of watching from like WrestleMania 20, which I think is, it was, uh, 2004 and I kind of watched up to like when I started actively watching wrestling which was like 2015 so you know that's about a decade and at the beginning of that period of time he was sort of just really emerging on the main roster of WWE and then by the end of that he's this huge crossover star Um, but consistently throughout his career you see that like there's a lot sometimes more intentionality and sometimes bigger budget like put into his entrances than a lot of other wrestlers like every year at Wrestlemania it's like a big theme and he has something different like one year it's a marching band another year it's a gospel choir one year there's this whole like weird like fake newsreel about like the great depression and about the rise of the, like Chicago mobsters which it sort of suggests that like Al Capone and fellow you know, like bootleggers were like responding to poverty that they were like pulling themselves up by their bootstraps out of poverty, which I don't really think is the case with like Al Capone necessarily. Like, I don't think that's how people like think of him as some like 
a people's hero, you know, like the working man. I don't know. So it's sort of like, and then he comes out with all these like mobsters and he like fires Tommy gun blanks into the air. And at the beginning of his career, it's like, he's basically just like Mark Wahlberg. Like that's literally what the gimmick feels like. You know, he's that they're like, Oh, he's the only guy from West news, Newsbury, Massachusetts who listened to hip hop. He's hip hop versus tradition. He's blue collar. He's working class. They really kind of emphasize him too, as sort of like ethnic white and, you know, or like associating him with like Italian mobsters and like with the Irish too, but also there's this really complicated relationship and sometimes kind of appropriate relationship with blackness because he's early on like rapping all the time, but also early on kind of speaking with a little bit of a black scent um, and definitely some sort of lines being crossed. And it's very weird that he is seen as like the face of hip hop in a company where there have been black wrestlers before. And it's sort of weird to have him promoted as like that break with tradition when he's still just like another kind of buff white guy. But over time, as he becomes really huge and becomes really advanced by the company, starts being like the Marine 12 rounds, like all those movies, um, things kind of change and all of that like strips away and he just becomes sort of like the Marine, you know, pro America nationalism, patriotism, like WrestleMania 31. His intro is like, he's wrestling against Rusev, who is this Bulgarian wrestler, but he's playing like a Russian character and he comes out like on a tank and has a Russian flag. And he's like super like F America. And John Cena comes out and has this whole montage with like clips from Eisenhower and George Bush and like, rockets going off and stuff and it's just like we got to defend america and it's just like i don't know about this buddy uh you know you seem like a nice guy but uh definitely some agendas here um so i don't know it was just sort of like fascinating thinking about that like in connection to his movie star persona because i do think that i mean it's kind of the same thing with the rock where like now the rock has a very popular image as like a nice guy you know like people a guy people like but for a lot of his wrestling career he was a nasty heel he said horrible things about people oftentimes like really homophobic things about people and now that's sort of all been like a erased a little bit and he's you know like running for president or whatever um so i don't know it's kind of a similar thing a little bit with john cena but it just feels like you know it's almost like he's always been primed for being a movie star just a lot of his decisions or the creative decisions made for him in the ring and this year is really interesting for him because i mean like you mentioned a lot of the movies that he's done so far but he, it seems like he's never had like that one that seems to like you know with like the rock with uh with uh fast five and then you know uh central intelligence stuff like that like it became like he kind of rose above jumanji jumanji yeah rose above being like the wrestler who is in movies too like he's kind of a movie star just on his own and it seems like they've been trying to push that with john cena for a very long time and this year he's got the new fast and furious movie and then he's got which is he's pretty much playing like the rock role and then he's got that suicide squad movie yeah he's literally vin diesel's brother yeah and he's got the suicide squad (laughs) movie also so it's like it's kind of it seems like this is the make or break year for john cena like is he gonna is he gonna do his Mm -hmm. thing with richard kelly i know you know he needs that like weird serious role like he was in like uh doug lyman movie the wall with like it's just him and aaron taylor johnson and they're like 
pinned down by a sniper in Afghanistan or something. And so it's just like them in the desert, which I've kind of been mildly curious about. Just sort of an interesting concept, but I'm sure it's not that good. But I feel like, yeah, for years it was like, you know, he was showing up in like <laughs> sisters and all these like random comedies. And then, you know, that he was in blockers and had a bigger role in that. And people praised him for that. And, and I think like the rock, he's uh, sort of taken that sort of like hybrid action comedy kind of route, you know, also in some sort of family in family movies too. Um, which is then very interesting to see like Dave Batista also become a big star now. And he is in some of those types of movies, but also seems to be deliberately taking a different path of like actually doing like acting kind of roles, you know, like, I mean, say what you will about like Blade Runner 2049 or Dune, but he's playing like more serious kind of intense uh, characters uh, in those movies than, than the rock or John Cena usually do. So those, those are my wrestling thoughts. <laughs> um, and then you had a DMX movie you want to talk about before we jump into belly. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, no, you know, um, since we're talking about hype Williams, obviously one of his frequent collaborators was the late great rapper DMX, um, who, you know, starred in, we'll talk in a second about Belly, um, which was directed by Hype Williams and DMX stars in alongside Nas, but DMX, like a lot of rappers, uh, just in general, but specifically, I think of the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, there's sort of a boom of, of rappers and movies and, and sort of like direct to video movies geared around rappers sometimes. And so, you know, DMX was in a number of movies like cradle to the grave and Romeo must die and has been in some other just random bargain bin movies. Um, but one film that I'd been meaning to check out for a while, which is actually like really good, um, which is directed by Ernest Dickerson who is Spike Lee's longtime cinematographer, also director of the movie Bones, which uh, with Snoop Dogg, which we did an episode about, uh, also directed Juice with Tupac, which is another really great movie, um, Surviving the Game with Ice-T, also underrated, a kind of riff on The Most Dangerous Game. Basically a lot of movies with rappers, but um, his movie with DMX, Never Die Alone, is from 2004, and it's shot by Matthew Libatique. So, of course, it looks really amazing. Soundtrack is by jazz legend George Duke. And it's based off of a novel by Donald Goines, who is a really fascinating guy. Um, basically, he um, he was this guy in like the 60s and 70s who was a heroin addict and he would kind of do anything and everything uh, legal, uh, illegal otherwise to pretty extreme ends to kind of fund his addiction. And, you know, he eventually ended up in prison. And while he was in prison, he started writing and he tried out writing Western novels. It wasn't really working. Then he found the works of Iceberg Slim, the infamous pimp turned novelist. And Iceberg Slim is kind of famous for a really sort of like, I don't know, kind of a like gritty sort of street realism that would later become influential to a lot of rappers. And so Donald Goyne, sort of inspired by that, started churning out all of these books basically based off of his life, based off of crimes he'd done or been involved in, people he knew, just kind of stories of addiction, of poverty, of intense violence, in a really sort of raw and direct manner. Um, and he eventually ended up being murdered and just kind of like died how he lived. Um, but his movies are really, his novels, I mean, are really brutal and, and frank and were also referenced by Tupac and Nas and so many 90s rappers. So this is an adaptation of one of those novels, but it 
really interestingly gives it a like frame story and DMX, even though he's on the poster is not really actually the main character of the movie. He narrates it in this sort of like, he plays this like drug kingpin named King David, who's constantly talking into a tape recorder, which is a very like noirish touch, but sort of the way he's talking, it's kind of like iceberg slim meets like Dale Cooper meets Kenny powers. And he's just like constantly recording what he's doing, whether it's like mundane or just like he, kind of horrible things that he's sometimes just doing. And at the beginning of the movie, he dies pretty quickly. He gets stabbed and David Arquette finds him on the street, drives him to the hospital and they're talking in the car kind of. And David Arquette's like, wow, this like noble black guy I found on the street, like he's dying. He's old. He must have all this wisdom to impart to me. Takes him to the hospital. DMX dies. And the guy, the nurse is like, hey, like you didn't know him, but he just willed over our like his car. And he has this big tricked out car that David Arquette does not fit in, like does not look like he should be in, (laughs) gives him all this money and stuff. And is like, hey, like everything like that was his is yours now, basically. So David Arquette gets in the car and finds all of these cassette tapes of DMX talking and just kind of narrating his life. And David Arquette is a journalist who really wants to be a sort of Ernest Hemingway type fiction novelist. And he lives like in an uptown Harlem apartment. He's like the only black guy. Uh, or the only white guy I mean in his neighborhood only white guy at the bar he goes to he's got like Miles Davis and Wu-Tang posters on his wall he has a black girlfriend who dumps him because she's like I think I'm part of your weird fetish and she literally says to him this isn't a rap video or a Tarantino movie and David Arquette while he's listening to these tapes is basically having these like flashbacks and fantasy sequences of like DMX's exploits which feel like a Hype Williams movie or like a Tarantino movie almost like very colorful but sort of spy thriller almost at first uh very drug fueled and then things get really bleak and the the it's very sunny and kind of brightly lit candy colored and then it starts getting like much more monochromatic and darker and dmx starts doing these really just like unforgivable horrible things and david arquette is just like listening to it fantasizing about it still kind of getting off on it then writes those stories like into a novel called never die alone which you see a manuscript that says never die alone and instead of being by donald goines it's by this just random white guy you know whatever david arquette's character's name is and he takes it to his publisher who is black and the publisher just laughs at him and is like you just made this shit up and he's like no no no, it's real like i heard it you know it's real it's real and he's like nobody's gonna believe you and i just thought it was like so fascinating because it's just like ernest dickerson is a great genre director you know this is a great like noir 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 kind of homage great jazz soundtrack great cinematography but when dmx passed i felt like i noticed a lot of sentiments from some white rap fans sometimes of a certain age who were saying things kind of like oh like rest in peace dmx like oh i remember listening to him growing up and my parents were like so scandalized by his music you know he was so scary to them like it was so you know getting into dmx was rebellious for me and like you know i'm a white rap fan too and growing up in a kind of conservative environment i think getting into it there was definitely a rebellious function but i just felt like it was kind of weird to have this artist who so often grapples with really serious things and really like spiritual issues and existential issues uh to see him just held up in this way of like shock value especially coming from like white rap fans being a black artist and 
I thought it was so fascinating that there's basically a movie that DMX was in that's like literally about that uh, problematic relationship of like, you know, spectatorship of, of white audiences to black art and particularly black art that's focused on, on trauma and violence and poverty and, and things that those fans have often not experienced. Um, so... It's, you know, it's almost a little bit of like a psycho fake out with DMX. He does show up in the like fantasy flashback sequences, but he's not really like the main narrative focus of the movie, which threw me for a loop at first. And I was like, oh, is this some just like, you know, DTV, like shitty action movie stunt casting where they have like a rapper on the cover and then he's only in 10 minutes of it. But it's actually like has kind of a purpose because it's about the sort of like imagination of who DMX is. And I think the casting of him in particular is just like so powerful to that. Um, hmm. That sounds interesting. Ernest, yeah, Ernest Dickerson stays having like undiscovered deep cuts. Like every time I watch one of his movies, I'm just like, damn, this is just like a really like I don't know. He R.I.P. to both of them. Oh, he's still alive. He's still he's still. There, uh, no, Ernest Dickerson's still alive. Is he still alive? Yeah, he's still working. <gasps> Working hard. Oh, sorry. So rest in peace to DMX. <laughs> sorry, Ernest Dickerson. <laughs> I mean, he's old. He's pretty old, but sorry, man. I thought you were dead. Um, Still out there making like TV episodes and stuff. Cool. Well, speaking of DMX, let's, uh, this will kind of bleed into the into part two. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about Belly, the 1998 film that's directed by Hype Williams, um, which stars DMX as well as Nas, uh, where they're both. Oh, no, they're best friends. They uh, they're both kind of coming up together um, as criminal. End up being criminals. Um, it's kind of it's a it's a pretty simple crime. Like Michael and I before we record started recording, we're talking about it. The story it's tough to be. It's kind of tough to follow, but it's also not tough to follow because it's very much like the. They, you know, worked their way up and they got to the top and it was great. And then they, you know, they naturally had to fall down. And that's kind of the, the, the nature of it. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of even like, I don't know, rewatching it, having seen it now multiple times, there's things that stand out as like, oh, like the beginning, they pull the guns out from behind the toilet in the club bathroom, like obvious kind of Godfather homage or like other parts. I'm like, oh, this feels pretty much like Goodfellas, you know? Well, that's what was so cool. Cause so this is the first time I had ever seen it. Um, and one, I really liked it. I, I like this. This movie is fantastic. Um, I was telling Michael as well, like I need to watch your uh, Coldplay remix because it's a movie that I would I would love to watch it without sound. Because, again, I, I, I struggle to like keep up with what like what they're talking about and like what the plot is, because I'm so like mainly because you're just so cl- you know, like uh, just taken with the visuals of it, because. I mean, it's just so visually arrest. I mean, it, even more like visually arresting than like his music videos. Like, there really is like this, um, this vision. Like, like th- that's what makes it kind of unique. It does feel like it's it's you know ripping from Godfather and Goodfellas and things like that. But it also feels like this kind of completely reimagined version of that. That um, felt like something so. Um, it was it was very vibrant like I mean you think of like that first sequence and, it, and like just the blues and everything oh my gosh I, I think that's one of the things that was interesting because I this may have been one of this may have been you Nathan but I remember watching I guess it was American Gangster the Denzel Washington movie um, and logging in on Letterboxd and saying like it's interesting seeing like this kind of 
like Godfather, Goodfellas, Indebted movies starring like a like a person of color, right? And like you know, kind of you know, a lot of the Godfather and Goodfellas are about like you know white ethnicity and to have it you know about not whiteness, uh, you know, something that's outside of whiteness um, was really interesting. I I think it was you, Nathan, who recommended Belly on that and on on like your point, Zach, like. I think one of the liabilities of like a lot of gangster movies is that they just want to be Goodfellas or or The Godfather, and they kind of forget that The Godfather, for example, was felt so fresh because it was taking like an established genre and infusing it with like kind of European art house sensibilities, uh, and like you know taking new influences to tell the story in a way that s- slightly you know uh, changed how people's relationship to it was. Uh, and I think Belly like 100% does that, um, taking kind of like this, like, you know, quasi like American dream, like organized crime narrative, but infusing it with like influences that we hadn't seen before, like obviously like music video style, um, and like, you know, hip hop signifiers and, uh, those things. And I think it's like really interesting if we consider it within that legacy of like, uh, organized crime like American movies um, and I think more so than American gangster you know for example yeah I mean I think it's really yeah it's definitely valuable to think about it through that lens because I mean rappers like Nas and DMX and Jay-Z of course you know who did the American gangster like tie-in concept album you know like Wu-Tang was pulling from from kung fu movies and Three Six Mafia was pulling from horror movies like so many New York rappers of that era were pulling from mafia movies and, and mob movies. And I mean, that's just such a like trip of hip hop in general. But I think very, very specific, like intensely in, in New York at that time, just because like mafia movies are so often centered in New York. Like, I think that's part of it, too. Um, but I think that. Um, gosh, what was I going to say? Um, you know, so I think that like it just it 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 lends itself to that because like, you know, we've sort of said like a a lot of those classic iconic gangster movies are about ethnicity and like assimilation and the sort of the struggles of like an ethnic outsider to get to the top, uh, whatever that means in society. And I feel like belly almost sort of like, you know, imagines this world, you know, it takes the gangster format, but it imagines this world where like, black people basically like have the power and authority that like white people have in a normal gangster movie. And I feel like even in a way that like the very weird scene where they go to DMX's house and they're watching Gummo, um, which like I've always understood that that happened because Hype <laughs> and Harmony Corinne were friends. I mean, I feel like you can see that influence so obviously on like Spring Breakers, but I was kind of actually thinking about this after I saw Spring Breakers once because in Spring Breakers, there's a lot of scenes of the girls like watching images of of black like violence against black people like Kimbo Slice fight videos and shit like that. And I was kind of thinking about how like just I don't know, just how black violence and 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 and, you know, is so often a spectacle for white people in our society. And that belly almost in a way in this sort of fantasy kind of imagines a world in which like violence between white people is a spectacle now to like the the black elite that are like existent in this world like just something about watching that like these white trash kids kill each other is like feels like a very sort of charged image of like flipping the power dynamics of kind of what that sort of spectatorship usually is um I don't know if that makes any sense, but I feel like there's just so much in like, I don't know. We can talk about this more, but I feel like there's so much in like how hype frames 
bodies and, and black bodies and the way he emphasizes skin and stuff that just feels like very much like kind of like empowering, you know, almost by like just really sort of like in a kind of Grace Jones like way. Like I feel like Grace Jones is a huge influence on him probably because it's sort of being a little bit confrontational with how blackness has been filmed because so often the history of like lighting has been, you know, racist and not made to photograph people of, of darker skin tones. And so I feel like by just sort of oftentimes exaggerating or, or really just playing with lighting or playing like with the Missy Elliott videos, like playing with body size and stuff. It's like, it's sort of saying like, fuck you to whatever you think that like black bodies are supposed to be. Um, and so I just feel like it's just sort of like, it's both this very sad movie, but it is also this sort of like giving of kind of power, I think too. Um, well, he, he utilizes something that we'll, we'll probably talk about in a little bit in part two, that that kind of low fisheye lens shot where it's like kind of low, like looking up, but it like gives like this, this it looks like this kind of like almost uh, larger than life image of the person. And he does that a lot, you know, in that in that first scene in DMX's house where everybody's it seems like everybody is seated with some sort of painting of a um like a black figure like above them and he shoots it with the camera going up and so every time it cuts to the different person talking you have like this you have the per you have you know Nas or who or the guy I forgot his name but the guy from the wire um like whenever they the, it go it cuts to each person um it's like you see them talking um and they kind of have like this they're a little bit distorted just because the camera's coming from the from the you know floor up but you also have like this giant image of like a face and then you have the, the one of the naked woman and then you have the one of like just the body um and like there is kind of like these like they had just come back from this job that they did at the club where they you know stole they where they robbed the 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 club and everything um and there's just kind of like these almost like uh mythical qualities to just that whole sequence um where you're like just the way he frames everybody in it yeah and i feel like one thing too one image in it that's like one sequence that really just sort of captures the whole feeling of watching the movie and sometimes it being a little bit disorienting or unclear which like now having sort of seen it times without dialogue I feel like it actually does kind of have a very sort of like sometimes just with how much he uses intense colors and will cut back and forth between like a really dark blue room and then a really pink room or whatever it almost has a kind of silent movie effect where like you know the villain wears a black hat and has a twirly mustache so you can immediately be like that's the villain it's like not that obvious but sometimes I feel like he does sort of have these visual signifiers where it's like you you can figure out and also because it's such a classic kind of format um, you can figure out what's going on but I think for me a like key moment is when when DMX is like m- making deals with the like Jamaican kingpin and he goes over to his house and there's like the huge bowl of weed on the table and they're smoking a blunt and there's like a soccer game on and hype this always blows my mind every time I see it hype starts to superimpose the soccer game over their conversation which just feels like such an experience watching that movie to me because it feels sort of like when you're high and somebody's talking to you but there's also just like noise in the background maybe it's TV on maybe somebody else conversation and it's like your brain is split a little bit and you're hearing the person who's talking to you but you're also focused on whatever else is going on and that felt like a visual representation of that which just feels like what the movie is like you know it feels like I mean I think people kind of like I don't know this is like a movie that like it's just like you're meant to like maybe 
be really high watching it, but it does just sort of innately have that quality of like, I get what's going on here, but it, there's a little bit of a haze. My favorite, my favorite shot of the entire movie is when they're in Jamaica and they're like in line for like a club or something. And there's this like very tall woman and she has like this kind of bodysuit outfit that's like kind of kaleidoscope rainbow colors. And like the and hype again, like has like the low shot up. They shoots her and she is just like just jiggling she's just like sitting there dancing her ass yeah. off and yeah. but because like the the clothing is like colitis like it feels like like you're watching her like you're watching her body move and then you're also watching like the colors and everything move and it's just it's such a weird like 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 i like my mind had to like figure out what was going on for a second and he and he kind of just holds it for a while and i was like that's awesome that's a, just a fantastic shot really has nothing to do with anything (laughs) in the movie but it's just wonderful um we'll talk a little bit more about we can probably we'll probably bring it up in in part two but let's go ahead and uh we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back talking a little bit more about hype williams and his work after this hey cemetery listeners andrew here at the midpoint of this week's episode i want to direct you to some of the non-podcasty things we have to offer first if you're a fan of what we do please consider supporting us on patreon for five dollars a month you get three things a shout out at the end of every episode the opportunity to choose a movie we cover on the show and our patreon exclusive podcast film theory and chill in which we look at a piece of theory once a month deconstruct it and then just chill out talking about whatever else we have going on all patreon support goes solely to paying our writers for their reviews that go up on our website every monday also at the bottom of cinematary.com you can sign up for our free newsletter every sunday we send out an email with the latest podcast episode patreon content and written reviews this is perfect for those who want to keep tabs on what's happening but might be too busy to see the posts when they go up before i go one more quick thing the easiest thing you can do to support us is to give cinematary a rating and review on itunes spotify or wherever you listen to the show this is quick free easy and we will read your review out on the show once we get it to recap consider donating to our patreon sign up for the free newsletter and please give us a rating and review thanks for listening let's get back to the show When the rain hits my window, I take it. Me some, me and Timberland, we sing a dangle. We so tight that you get our styles tangled. Sway your dosi do like you loco. Can we get thinking night like Coco? So so, you wanna play with my yo yo? And we're back with part two of episode 348 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our music video series with a look at a collection of works by Hype, the director Hype Williams. Um, real quickly before we dive in, Nathan, uh, I guess a little quick primer on who Hype Williams is. Because um, I mean, you, I, you, I know you mentioned last week that you, you mentioned a number of directors who are kind of frequent pe- people who pop up a number of times like as kind of the premier music video go-to people and i feel like hype williams is probably very much like on that mount rushmore 
Yeah, I mean, we didn't really have much rap on the last episode, and part of that it was just because I feel like, I mean, there are great rap music videos not directed by Hype Williams, but I feel like if you're just trying to do a survey of music video history and you're like, okay, what are the great rap videos? A lot of them are by Hype Williams, or at least the most visually iconic and innovative. And so I just, you know, I... I, I uh, know that you know when we were planning this series that uh, we had talked about doing an episode about him specifically and um, I feel like part of that is you know part of why he's more interesting than I don't know you know I mean no disrespect to Spike Jones or Michelle Gondry or any of those really great acclaimed directors but in terms of music video work itself like I don't really feel like there's anybody who is quite in auteur like Hype Williams is like just having such an identifiable look that has been imitated countless times you know there are I mean maybe certain kind of tropes or traits or, or ticks to directors you know some of those other music videos directors to their sort of style like I guess you know a lot of those 90s directors would use a lot of certain kinds of stop motion animation or um you know, Spike Jones has a lot of sort of that like skateboard video and comedy influence in his videos. And so you can like notice being like, oh, yeah, that's a Spike Jones video. But Hype Williams is just like such an almost like trademark kind of look that is just like totally his alone. And, and I think in some of these videos, you see definitely like predecessors and things that influenced him. But he just really, I think that like, beyond even most musicians was such a single-handed force in in rap and hip-hop and r&b specifically but just in pop culture in general i mean i think there's a lot of things that we can talk about or maybe examples of things that have been influenced by him in the first half you know i sort of mentioned spring breakers as something but i think there's a lot of music videos too that have really imitated him and a lot of a lot of stuff that wouldn't really exist without him and and a lot of also a lot of artists too who like their entire sort of or so much of their entire look and persona and what they're really remembered for is owed to the video work of Hype Williams. I mean, Missy Elliott, Busta Rhymes, Kanye, a lot of his really close recurring collaborators. It's like when you think about Missy Elliott, you think about the Super Duper Fly video. You know, when you think about Kanye, a lot of times you usually think about Kanye videos. It's just like he really, I think, took it to another level in terms of like making music video a real part of an artist's work but also by being such a director and an icon and author himself i mean a lot of even these later videos on this list you see like there's a lot more like text animation and stuff and it will say like hype, hype williams at the beginning of the video and that's i mean pretty infrequent uh not a lot of music video directors have that kind of name recognition yeah well, uh, one thing, uh, you know, to, to kind of as, as we get started is just kind of watching through these, you also see that he seems to be the kind of person that like if you got a Hype Williams music video, like that's kind of a signifier of who is like 
who's made it or who is like the per, you know, the, the top of, of whatever, you know, you see, um, you know, just looking at kind of, uh, at the list. I mean, you, you start with people like Tupac and Busta Rhymes and Missy Elliott and Will Smith. Um, and then you go into like DMX and Nas and Jay-Z and Snoop Dogg. And then, you know, later you have Kanye and Nicki Minaj and it kind of just tells you who is kind of the pulse of, of rap or, or hip hop at that period of time. Yeah, and I mean, he does do, you know, he does have different styles, and he's done some non-rap videos, too. He did some videos for Coldplay and, like, the uh, the Russian pop group Tattoo uh, and just, like, random gigs here and there. But also, too, I think if you're an artist at that level, it's like if you're going to High Williams, you're, you have a specific, like, image in mind. Like, his style has changed a lot over the years, but it's still very colorful, very cartoonish, and so you're kind of getting something very specific, usually, if you're going to him. You're not just, like, getting a video of, you know, partying or rapping into the camera or this is sort of, like, the classic tropes of hip-hop videos, which, I mean, he's definitely done that kind of stuff. Like, a lot of his earlier work, obviously, which was not so bold and not so stylish and or defined, at least, in its style, is, which I didn't really put any of those videos on here because they're just I don't know not as interesting but you know he he was he's from Queens and was working mostly with New York rappers at first working a lot with Wu-Tang and a lot of those videos are you know black and white single light bulb dude rapping into the camera not a whole lot but the first one that I have on there um Shimmy Shimmy Ya by ODB who's obviously a member of Wu-Tang Clan um I think kind of like shows like you know he is Still sort of very based in New York, but starting to develop this style that really starts to catch people's attention. Um, Well, and and it has, it's the style, you know, and you see this throughout, regardless of who the video is. Like, I was thinking about these videos compared to what we were talking about last week. And last week, you, I mean, we talked a little bit specifically with like the Sinead O'Connor video where it's like just kind of her, like, speaking to the audience to a degree like she's just making eye contact with you and like having this emotional scene and in this um in these videos like i love that his style is it's like the the artist is engaging like the camera is like this character almost like in the video that they're engaging with and so like i was talking about in part one like you have like those kind of uh, fisheye lens up you know upward shots that he does all the time where they kind of are looking down but also like it just like like there is just this intense engagement with like the camera that seems to be like stylistically what he's doing where you're engaging with this artist on a level i think like this one's interesting too because it's like um it's like a this isn't actually a soul train video i guess but it's like a you know, riffing on that, like, kind of cultural institution and, like, the idea of, like, one, like, uh, you know, like, a, like someone from, from Wu-Tang, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, just, just, like, throwing bars in the middle of, like, a Soul Train is, like, like, episode is really interesting, but also, like, it has the feeling of, like, an episode of Soul Train without, like, the actual guest, and so, like, the, the, like, it almost feels like um, disruptive, like the that the camera is magnetized to a person who might not otherwise not have been like in that Soul Train episode. Like it's kind of it's I, I think it's like just really interesting because it is like that kind of iconic kind of set, which I we can talk about also later on, too. But like this, the kind of abstract 
like sets and stuff like definitely feels like in a lineage of like soul train and that sort of thing but get like super stylized like the tlc video um later on um but also like this definitely these early ones have a kind of like like raucous energy to them that feels like um like rough around the edges in a kind of unpredictable way that i also thought was really interesting and is maybe not present later on when it gets a little more stylish, which um, is fine too. But this one in particular, I thought was interesting because of how how disruptive and and disorienting it felt within the context of like the institution of Soul Train. Yeah, I, I kind of picked it for that reason actually because I thought it was really interesting, just like as a point of lineage, maybe to like. <sighs> Just sort of, you know, the sort of colorful flavor of his work, I think, owes a lot to, to the fashions and aesthetics of Soul Train and of, of 70s funk. And, um, and I mentioned in part one a little bit, like, I think that Grace Jones was another really big influence on him, probably. Um, I, and also, I feel like there are a number of references and sort of pastiches of, like... Egyptian or sort of African imagery in a lot of these videos. And so I feel like he is kind of in a way in a lineage of like Afrofuturism, especially with just sort of like pushing bodies beyond the sort of just like normal confines of like what a human being looks like. And, and so in that sort of racialized context, I think it's pretty powerful. And I mean, oftentimes it's like literally confrontational just with like the way the sort of wide angle or fisheye lens sort of like brings you into the face. It's like, they're literally, you know, like very much like quickly wrapping into your face. And that's just like demanding your attention. Yeah. And it's really sort of like above you too. like, yeah, yeah. just like drastically playing with perspective like that. And, and that's also the, so the second video, which is the one of several versions of, of, of videos for California love by Tupac, uh, featuring Dr. Dre and, and Roger Troutman. Um, but this is just like one of the best hype Williams videos. And it's, you know, it's like a parody of Mad Max beyond Thunderdome, but I think it's kind of interesting too thinking about it in that context of like Afrofuturism. Because it's just sort of offers this flip on like Mad Max and the sort of like general conventional like white post-apocalyptic genre where like Mad Max, it's like that society society is broken down and like for white people, it's horrible. But for maybe for other people who have been oppressed by that society, maybe there's actually like a liberatory potential. And now they can just like party in the desert freed from, uh, whatever systems of oppression existed before. Like that's a very, you know, sort of like maybe overly deep reading of that video, but in some way it's just like, I don't know, like using that kind of like, not just science fictional, you know, I think you say Afrofuturism usually and people think like Sun Ra and like really cosmic Im imagery, but obviously like Mad Max is science fiction too. Um, and so I just, I don't know, imagining that kind of future, which feels like what he often does, like these often feel like spaceships or like science fiction sets. And even if there's not like, there's oftentimes not like a context, it's just like pure imagery, but it feels like another planet or the future or another dimension of some kind. Yeah, I think these first two are really interesting because they do take place in recognizable environments, like cult like culturally recognizable environments you know we understand like if you've seen the mad max movies you know like you know where we are like in a kind of narrative context or in soul train you know like what like what's the environment and i think as as it gets like into the abstractions it takes like the the it takes away the cultural context while like maintaining the style which i think is these feel like important like stepping stones toward like some of those later videos for sure 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just also just the scope of it, you know, like I, I it it does just feel like like just the the way that he's able to because Mad Max, you know, it's not something that's incredibly easy to replicate, you know, just in terms of like the the people, you know, the people on the cars and just the the whole like kinetic energy of it. And it was just incredible to me watching this because I was watching it on my TV, like how much this like you could be fooled into this being like a Mad Max movie because like it just really had the scope. And so, yeah, you know, like one of the things I was mentioning to you um, before we started recording was like it just astounds me that that Hype Williams never was, you know, given some sort of blockbustery movie like something big to do in terms of like a movie and it seemed natural to do something like a like a fast and furious movie just because he has like one he has this very distinct like music video style that seems like perfect for like a fast and furious movie which kind of uses that to a large degree and then two he really like he shows these elements of understanding like how to construct a very entertaining action sequence even like in stuff like belly like there's there's moments where you're like yeah like this he he's showing you as much that that shows that he could handle one of these projects as much as like i mean he he just has more experience than like the fucking russo brothers so it's just like you know like there's something so uh yeah literally you know there's just something so big and, and entertaining about it yeah, no, I, you know, when you brought that up earlier, you know, I mentioned that he had been attached for a while to the Speed Racer movie, which like, I love that movie, all respect to the Wachowski sisters, all love, but I would lo- absolutely kill to see his version of that movie. You know, it just, it, it makes total sense to that kind of pairing. Um, and I also imagine, you know, he's probably just like on set in terms of like being a director, you know, he's worked with some difficult personalities over the years. I mean, to be, you know, he's made more videos with Kanye than any other artist in his career so I'm sure he knows like just how to handle people well and I'm just like why not give him a Hollywood movie I mean maybe he's transcended past that at this point maybe he doesn't want to do that but I just feel like it's just yeah it's just just looking at belly it's just like we're so wrong but, but yeah but but like because you're just like man like that like I was I, like I was like there was parts while watching these where I was like man how entertaining would a hype Williams fast and furious movie be like, I just want that so bad because it would like you would, there'd be no plot. It would just be cars and music and people. It would just be the best. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I mean, I, to the point of just kind of movies, I think, you know, that some of the next videos that are on the list, like I have three Buster Rhymes videos, which I mentioned Kanye is like hype most frequent collaborator and Buster Rhymes is second. And I feel like with Buster Rhymes and Missy Elliott in particular, which I also have a couple of Missy Elliott videos, I think those are, it's like he sort of found his like stars almost because if you just like listen to the music of Buster Rhymes and Missy Elliott apart from Hype Williams, I mean, what they're doing kind of like sounds very equivalent to his style. You know, they just have a very like cartoonish sort of exuberant flow. Both of them, I feel like very unique sonically and not really like 
a lot of other rappers at that time. You know, Busta Rhymes seems pretty different to me than a lot of other New York rappers at that time. And I mean, Missy Elliott is from Virginia and has a sound that's like not really Southern, not really Northern, just like very distinct. And they have a kind of futurism in their music a little bit too. Like, I mean, just the fact that like Busta Rhymes like uses the Psycho soundtrack and the song Give Me Some More just like so so lends itself to like an absurd music video. And that's one of my favorite hype videos. And I think it's just like that kind of cinematic sound works perfectly with it. So I feel like he sort of like started to over time, like gravitate or at least find those kinds of like, these are the, the, the artists who really get what I'm doing, but who I also can tap into like their personas already. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, the, uh, Wuha that also is just such like a energetic, you know, in terms of like the Busta Rhymes one, it's just such an energetic uh, video. Like I'm watching it right now, and just like the fact that it's all like it, it's they're driving through New York, but you have like they're just in that car, and you're like constrained to that space, but there's still like so much like elasticity to it. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that's really interesting about hype is we were sort of talking last week a little bit about just like the potentials of sort of like studio space and how it seems like with music videos, you either have like artists who are really into using effects and playing with the artificiality. And then you have artists who it's like, we want to capture the performance. We want the concert footage. We were on a really like showcase our skill as musicians. And those feel like sometimes like the two dominant branches almost, if you could generalize of music videos and I feel like hype just more than anyone else really takes up the opportunity of just like having a studio confined space. And I feel like that progressively happens more and more over time where like the ends of these videos are, you know, his work from like 2004 on is pretty much all like green screen backgrounds, artists framed very tightly, colorful widescreen bars. And that style actually, there's like a reason he changed his style up completely was because he started like losing work, I guess a little bit in the early 2000s. In 2003, he only made one video. And I think he maybe thought that his style had been just like super played out or was like too familiar, really easy to parody. Which I mean, I think there are actually kind of some like things that I see a little bit as like hype Williams parodies, like the video for Hit 'em Up by Tupac, um, which is generally regarded as like one of the <laughs> most intense diss tracks of all time and was targeted at Biggie and uh, P. Diddy and Bad Boy Records, who. I mean, we watched a Tupac video, but Hype was very close with that New York crew. And the video for that literally feels like it's also kind of like taking shots at Hype Williams a little bit and also being like, fuck Biggie and, and fuck Mob Deep and all of that. Um, so I think he, he he switched it up and now he just he does that thing much more where where it's like like the Gold Digger video is not on this list, but it's like that, too, where it's just like the silhouette of the artist and a green screen, colorful background. But that just is like even more claustrophobic almost than the really crazy sets of, of Will Smith and stuff. Yeah, I mean, and you get you get to the point where it's almost I mean, if you watch these this playlist as like, a you know, chron- in chronological order, like and I, I already mentioned this, but like the the like abstraction of everything. And then by the time you get to the last few, you know, like a uh, heartless like is on here and then all of the lights is on here, like where it's, it's more or less just completely abstracted the human form and just turned everything into a construction, you know, like heartless is like mostly animated. Um, all of the lights is like, you know, over half of it is just, um, you know, digital fonts on the screen. Um, 
And I think that that's, that's super interesting as like, uh, and I mean, you mentioned Speed Racer, but like, you know, that's kind of like where like, you know, cinema went to is like increasingly toward like digital construction, um, you know, kind of concurrent with that. And I think that that's like really interesting as like a parallel movement is like this, uh, you know, the, the ability of the music video. And I think Andrew said this last week or he was paraphrasing maybe David Burns or something uh, or David Byrne or something. But um, just the idea that like um, of, of music videos to like, you know, push toward like, you know, almost like an avant garde. And like you definitely get that sense by the end of this, you know, like I mean, you mentioned I mean, this is much earlier than like, you know, Heartless or whatever, but the give me some more is just like so aggressively weird like with its like the the way it contorts everything you know it's like you know people talk about um uh you know kind of like you know um the like 90s like fisheye you know lens like and that's like the like apothea or apex of like how much fisheye can you have and like it's the entire video and the sets themselves are already like kind of weird like tim burton-esque like expressionist looking sets but underneath the fisheye it just becomes like just so warped and then uh you know pushing further down you know like uh with some of these other like the the Nicki minaj video stupid ho um by the end like that's just like i mean Nicki minaj is already like you know such a at that point in her career especially like such a wild and cartoonish persona but it's just this taking like what can you do with environments and the human body and just like just warping it in just these really like interesting ways that like uh feel feel just like almost like impossible you know i mean it, it literally is impossible some of it because of the digital stuff but i i just think that's such an interesting project of music videos in general and hype williams specifically is to like just the the constant like reaching for like the possibilities of like what like the human form and what or what like environments can look like in a music video well and and also you know like you mentioned give me some more like there it'd be interesting to see if if there's somebody who has written at all or anything like looking at the work of hype williams and comparing it to you know like chuck a or Chuck Jones, Tex Avery, and, you know, cartoon animators like that for, like, Looney Tunes and stuff. Just There's a lot of Pee Wee's Playhouse in there, too, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, because you just see, you, you feel like a lot of just, just mainly because everybody, like, the, like the people in it feel so, like, 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 just like you're stretching them or they're getting sped up or they're getting thrown around. Like they just like, like, especially give me some more. It just feels, it feels like this human cartoon. Um, and, but I feel like there's like those elements, even in other videos where like, you know, you have that fish, that fisheye lens shot and it just allows people to like engage with it in the way, whether they're like moving up close or moving back or moving around it. Like there's just kind of this elasticity to the performers that it, it, it feels like, you know, like a, like a Looney Tunes cartoon at times. Yeah. I mean, I've used this term, I think to describe movies we've talked about like speed racer and hell's a pop. And, but you know, a lot of this is basically like flesh cartoons, uh, sort of, you know, animating humans, like an animated frame. And so again, I think it's another reason why he would have been a perfect choice for speed racer. And I think, 
sort of what you were saying, both Michael and Zach, about stretching the body kind of beyond its normal confines. You know, that's what I always sort of think about, like Speed Racer does with its sort of crazy wipes and like not really using conventional cutting that it sort of like goes beyond conventional linear film time. And, and that's just what it feels like he does a lot with bodies. And I mean, Nicki Minaj is like a perfect collaborator with him because so much of her, her persona is like, you know, being a Barbie doll and her fans are called Barbs. And so it just, she literally presents herself as this plastic doll. So it totally makes sense for them to work together. And the last video I have on here the travis scott 90210 video is uh all stop motion you know like anomalisa vibes you've got some action figure sex in there and um so it's just he's kind of totally america flashback in that part yeah oh god (laughs) but i think also one thing i was really thinking about with these videos is like you just really see in a hyper intense way like how much like digital editing and non-linear editing platforms change just like a lot of things with film form like I think that's something people don't really think about so much when they complain about like hyper fast cutting in the 2000s is a lot of that was literally just because of new technology, because people could cut frames smaller than ever before without quite as much work and undo that easier than ever. You know, you don't you're not fucking gluing stuff and spilling chemicals all over your fingers and you can get really precise with it. And you so you see these hype Williams videos get super, super fast and they're already like cranked up. But, you know, there's just like, you know, like all of the lights again, it's just like just literally just animated. And that video particularly also made me think about how there's such an industry now on YouTube and other streaming platforms for like lyric videos and lyric visual, visual, visualizers. And, you know, just like, you know, that's like pseudo music videos just to have that for every song on an album. So you're not really spending as much money on an actual music video, but people are still streaming it and still kind of engaged by it. And I feel like living in New York, I know so many people who are like graphic designers who now just like get a lot of work doing that stuff for random artists. But I feel like all of the lights was kind of ahead of its time a little bit with that. Um, but I feel like he even thinks about to experiment with stuff. I was wondering that as I was watching. Uh, yeah, I was, I, I kind of don't know like really that really took off, but I feel like I don't really, it just seems like such a more, much a more thing of the past few years. You know, I feel like I've seen them for a while, but it's just gotten so much more prevalent, but he just thinks to experiment with parts of the frame that other people don't like the use of like, the multicolored um, widescreen bars. Like, I mean, most famously like the white bars in Big Pimpin', but I love the video for So Sick by Neo where he like, literally it's just like different frames kind of superimposed on over each other. It doesn't even feel like widescreen bars because you've got this like mountain you footage. You have like the travel, the travel yeah. footage in the background. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like... <laughs> Who would and then you know you've got like snap your fingers and stupid ho also playing with the color bars and I'm just like who would think to play with that part of the frame and again I think it's another thing that was just he was just like maybe really emboldened and wanting to experiment with editing and with After Effects and graphic design stuff like he probably did with lenses in the 90s. I don't think I don't remember I was I think whatever I was saying was back to the lyric video thing but just idly commenting that like I think lyric videos I remember seeing them on YouTube as like user-made videos right where it's like if someone had uploaded like you know I don't know like here's uh here's my user upload of um you know Alanis Morissette and I'm gonna put like the the lyrics to you know uh Jagged Little Pill like as they play and I don't I remember when the professional ones started showing up I remember thinking oh this is just them doing what the users have done and I 
I don't know like where that fits into like what what uh, the all of the lights video is doing, but like it does feel kind of interesting in that same way. Like if if like it really was just kind of like you know user upload kind of piracy kind of thing that that's where it got it started. Like there is something really interesting and transgressive about like co-opting that in this like extremely like high budget like digital way. Um, in the same way that like it reminds me of like the the really early videos where you know you have you know these like you know you know in this like you know major label rap artists like crashing like other forms like like mad max or, or soul train or something well we talked about it a little bit last week um but i think i think to to what nathan was talking about that also i mean it includes like tiktok and how people are literally kind of creating their own music videos and that type of thing. Um, you know, but like, it's kind of similar to all of the lights where you don't maybe necessarily see them. It's, it's just them kind of like mouthing the, the, the lyrics and such. Um, and that's become such like a, I mean, like now they, they have people literally making songs for TikTok. Um, because they want them to get it like on a trend so then they can like push it out that way and like that's the way people like there's so many songs that people have heard not from you know from you know spotify or something like that or the radio or something like it's literally they've been listening it's become like a part of a trend on tiktok and that's where they're listening to music i have a really interesting anecdote on that um i was at my student's prom a few weeks ago and like as I was like sitting there listening, like I was noticing, like they're not really playing very many new songs. They played like a Megan Thee Stallion song, uh, and like a few other new ones, but for the most part, it was songs that are like 10, 15 years old, you know, like Usher and like soldier boy and stuff. And I was like, and the students like knew all the songs and I was like, this is really weird. Like, you know, we wouldn't have played like, you know, 80 songs at my prom, uh, when I was in high school. Um, and like talking with students, like a lot of them knew the stuff from TikTok and it kind of blew my mind that it like just completely collapsed like the chronology of what a like high school like playlist would be like. Um, anyway, that, that's kind of a tangent, but that was like interesting, I thought. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, part of this too, like another thing I think of is how there's so many, so much new music uh, like on Spotify and stuff will have, unless you turn it off the like animatic that like loops while you're listening to the song. And it's like, you know, sometimes a clip from a music video, basically in GIF form or just like an animated squiggle or whatever lyrics or, (laughs) and it just feels like... I don't know. It feels sort of like how like every at a certain point, like every cable channel was kind of like we have to have scripted shows now. It's not enough to just show old movies or have reality shows or talk shows. We have to get into narrative content. And then every streaming service started doing that, too. It sort of feels like every artist now is like we need to maximize visual content. We need views in every form possible. And I felt like when I first saw Lyric videos emerge like you were talking about Michael you know it was like you know the, or the like the kind of like video game like runescape music videos of people sort of cutting their own clips together and putting lyrics <laughs> over a song which definitely made a few of those in my time and uh, but then it kind of felt like I don't know they were always just sort of like placeholders Wait, do you remember there was an MTV show do you remember the MTV show that was like they would took game engines and put uh set them to music oh wow uh, I remember seeing like um 
they did like uh, they took this was when Star Wars Episode Three had come out. They took like the tie-in like game, like PS Two game for Star Wars Episode Three, and then used the game engine to make a music video for um, Take Me Out, like the Franz Ferdinand song. Oh my god! Um, this was like a show that was on MTV. I don't know how long running it was, but it happened. <laughs> yeah, and and I don't know. It just like I felt like always like lyric videos were sort of a placeholder, like uploaded to the official artist channel, and like in you know the albums come out, we need to put the songs on YouTube, but we're waiting on the real music video, and now it just feels like a cottage industry of like stuff that's meant to be auto played, and I feel like you know Hype Williams has has I mean he's he's a little bit older now and resting on his laurels and does a lot fewer videos now um which is which is sort of a shame you know i wish i would love to see him do more stuff but i do feel like a lot of these more recent videos feel almost in some ways like they're like meant to be gift or memed a little bit just like you know with the Nicki minaj video you know she's it's got all these tight close-ups of her face and so many of them could just make like reaction shots or you know or just be used as like memes basically and and so it's like, you know, it's the work's not necessarily like any worse or it's just different and feels like it's you've seen you've seen it kind of adapt to the industry a little bit. And he's still a very identifiable, recognizable artist. But there's the conditions and the budgets and the context and everything has changed. But I feel like you see his influence so many places like I had made a little bit of lit of a list of like some recent music videos that I kind of have thought of just like that feel very high Williams influence to me. Like, um, the Kanye and Lil Pump video. I love it where they have the like huge, like Roblox looking suits on. I mean, that that's just like such a hype Williams throw. Yeah. I was thinking of the Missy Elliott video. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's so many Missy Elliott videos. And also, by the way, one thing I meant to mention was like, I would love to really know more about a lot of the like, production designers and art directors and stuff working on these videos, which is just one thing that's a shame about like the lack of music video history is how many sort of, I don't know, like crew members and hired hands who probably had a lot to do with the look of videos who just go totally unnoticed. But I remember listening to like an NPR interview with somebody who was a costume designer on a lot of rap videos. And she talked about like having to like, while they were filming, like stand behind Missy Elliott on the super duper fly set and like hold the, garbage bag suit together or something like because it kept like flying open <laughs> which is just so weird to think about her moving around like that thing about somebody being behind her um but yeah i don't know like just those ridiculous costumes i feel like a lot of charlie xcx is aesthetic i mean it's just generally very like 2000s late 90s influence but i feel like you see a lot of that sleekness kind of sci-fi futuristic vibe um and also like the hotline bling video you know drake that the color boxes that were like memed to death feel very hype williams and i think director x who did that video probably like owes his career to hype williams um and he did that like kind of underrated i think superfly remake a couple years ago which really had like hardcore belly vibes really felt like it was just trying to be that for a new generation well on that note you know as we kind of wind down i mean you mentioned that you know dmx buster rhymes uh kanye are kind of the his his main the people who he's worked with the most um i mean but kind of looking at them what do you think i guess what what do you what do you make of the relationship on both ends like what what has did hype williams kind of do 
for their careers, but then also, you know, what, what about them? And we talked about it a little bit with, with Busta Rhymes, like what, what about them seemed like, so like seemed perfectly matched for kind of the style that Hype Williams is kind of exuding because, um, there has to, you know, outside of them being, you know, pop, very, you know, insanely popular, prolific at the time, um, there has to be a reason why he's also going back and back over and over and over again to them for the videos. It's an interesting question. Um, you know, I feel like kind of the first thing that strikes me is that when you think about Kanye, Buster Rhymes, Missy Elliott, DMX, a lot of these regular collaborators, I think a certain tendency is that like, at least in certain parts of their persona and music, all of those artists are a little bit like larger than life. Um, you know, like I was saying earlier with the kind of like cartoonishness of, and sort of like just all over the place, like unpredictability of Busta Rhymes and Missy Elliott's deliveries and just how like DMX, even though he was like oftentimes very grounded in reality, very spiritual, you know, he had the whole dog persona and oftentimes had a very like kind of strong horror core, almost goth streak to his music. So, you know, there was like that sort of hell demonic energy sort of beyond the realm of the natural a little bit. And Kanye, I mean, it's just Kanye, you know, he's just super massive ego and um, an artist who's like really, I think, interested in just like pushing boundaries. And so I think also, too, you know, I mentioned like Hype's career declined a little bit. And I think a lot of the revival of his career is a kind of a to Kanye because it was after that initial dip that like he started working with Kanye and did all kinds of, you know, you look at it, all the videos he did with Kanye and it's so many different vibes and so many different types of things. And I think they were just well suited. And like Kanye is just, you seems like somebody who's so like, even though he's an asshole and an egomaniac, he does seem very open to collaboration. You know, so much of his music is really founded on like an intense process of collaboration. And I mean, sometimes even kind of straight up stealing ideas from other people maybe, but basically just a lot of times bringing in people into a room. And so I think he was just very receptive to hype and willing to be put into those kind of like cartoonish, larger than life inhuman images. Um, and so I think it was sort of a back and forth thing where like hype liked to, depict people in those way and those artists like to be depicted in that way and it was sort of mutually beneficial yeah and i I think also again like he seemed i feel like he he had to he kind of also understood that he was able to capture like he like think about he's capturing these people kind of at their apex you know it's like you're getting like peak dmx buster rhymes you're getting peak kanye you're getting these people who at like not that they decline necessarily but like this is when they were like people were you know very firmly like engaged in their work um and he's cat he's in like that's what's kind of in, like incredible like watch go like watching through these is that he's capturing these people at their height and is able to like collaborate with them on such a creative level just in terms of what the video is and that's on its just own merits to me at least is incredibly impressive because you don't always see that and so like like I was thinking about it also like I don't I don't I, there's you know you have like 
collaborations in movies now, but you don't really have like where you feel like an actor who's at their apex at the moment is working with a director at their apex. You know, you have like Marty and and Leo and stuff like that, and and, and De Niro and, and Scorsese stuff like that. You know, you have you have moments like that, but it's it's it almost harkens back to like when you had like a top-notch director like in old hollywood and then you had like one of the a-list actors and you're like let's like that's all you like you didn't need anything else you just like we're just going to shove these two into a movie together because you know carrie grant's the biggest star in the world and greg kukor is one of the biggest directors in the world just shove them together and it feels like hype williams and and these artists like kind of have that same energy where it's like hype williams is the is like you know top notch for directing and it and just as collaborative creative person and then you have like this apex artist and it's just like there there just seemed to be like this open creativity in these videos where it's just like let's just like let's just kind of like let this supernova take over um and to me that 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 was kind of the takeaway that i had because i'm like i don't think you get that a lot um just in in kind of how corporatized art has become I think you get it because there's been a lot of, you know, like you can go find however many think pieces you want about like the decline of like the icon of the movie star. Right. Like and so I think you get some of those collaborations, like maybe a little bit on the margins, like you think about like, I don't know, like Joaquin Phoenix and and, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson or someone like that. But like. I agree that like it, there is like definitely like kind of like an old school like like zeitgeist element to like these videos that's like very infectious just because of the context of of their careers. Yeah, and I think like too it also just shows that which I think this is something that kind of came up last week with certain artists where like you see just how really much they took up the potential of video and how they really made it a part of their full artistic work. And I think it just shows that like video, I mean, obviously live performance or just any kind of performance is like essential to that's what music is. It's a performance, but I think it just, the, the, the video form has really allowed like new ways to establish and demonstrate who you are as an artist because of like, basically being an actor or like of how you let your persona or body image be portrayed. I mean, one of the videos we didn't really talk about and it's a kind of different vibe, but DMX's video, how's it going down? Which is like basically a kind of standard. It's like a romance. Like it's just, it's, it's just like a movie and DMX is like counter to a lot of his persona, you know, just being like very sweet, kind of like trying to, you know, (laughs) spit game with this girl and, and, you know, got this relationship and everything like that. And so again, it's like, you know, DMX, like we were talking about his acting in the first part, but it's DMX kind of showing his acting ability. And like with Missy Elliott, I mean, you know, I'm sure she would have still been a huge star, but it's just, again, it's like she just went the extra mile with like costumes and choreography and it would not have been the same if she had not had that platform um, or, or that collaborator and Hype Williams who kind of probably, you know, pushed her to ideas that maybe would not have been there before. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that like we got to watch through these cause I, especially like watching belly. That was one of the most like inspired directing movies that I've watched in a while. Like he directed the shit out of that thing. It's incredible. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, it's effortless. Like I don't know, it's just thinking about the first time I saw it and just how my mind was blown by that opening scene and I'm just like 
how is this not like on the top of every list of the greatest movie openings ever? Like nothing comes close dropping that acapella version of soul to soul. Like that's just something also I wish more directors would do like using kind of remixed or alternate versions of songs. Like, I mean, now there's like a lot of the Zack Snyder, like slow piano cover stuff, but just having like an acapella version of a song instead of the actual song is like so inspired. I always, what was, Oh God, what was it? Was it imagination? The one they did with age of Ultron. God, what was... It was um, no, it was the Pinocchio. It was Pinocchio. Pinocchio. That was it. Yeah, Ugh. that's right. Because yeah, no strings on me. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah God, Jesus, drown me. Um, all right. Well, I believe that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash/cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com/slash/cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Head over to patreon.com/slash/cinematary. You can catch us. You can catch the live stream of this as we're doing the episode live. Um, but thank you so much to our patrons: Cam, Chad Newsom, Christina Daughtery, uh, Corey Willingham. Harry Eskin, Candace Sisson, Maggie, Michael Anthony Gonzalez, Ron Hayes, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Uh, next week, we will be continuing the music video series with 2003's Interstella. So we're going to keep it going. We'll have, uh, after that, we'll have our 350th episode. Rip Daft Punk. Yeah, Rip Daft Punk. We got to, you know, have a eulogy for them. Um, then we're going to have our 350th episode and then we're going to, we're going to conclude the series with Beyonce's lemonade. So it should be a good one. Um, but until next week, thank you guys for listening.